0: On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show.
1: Welcome to Opus Private Clients Well Style Podcast. I'm Ivan Watanabe, Managing Partner of Opus PC And your host today. Uh, Today, I'm really excited to have on Sarah Tracy as our guest. Uh, She's going to talk about a a topic that uh, for me is of particular interest in in wine. So, very, very excited about that. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you joining us.
2: I am so happy to be here today.
1: Awesome. So, uh, Sarah is a certified sommelier and founder of the Lush Life and Wine Expert. Um, Sarah's been the wine director at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and the resident wine expert at Martha Stewart Living Online, as well as uh, the founder of her own blog, The Lush Life. So again, welcome. I'm super excited for you to be here today. Um, Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
2: Yeah, so I have been a working wine professional since I think 2011 or 2012. My very first job in wine was... Emptying spit buckets at my local winery, and (laughs) after I did that for about six months, I got promoted to the head glassware polisher, which is the most important job in any restaurant or winery is the dishwasher and the polishing crew. And so I really did start from the ground up, and I was so happy just to be surrounded by working winemakers and just learning from the ground up, really everything I could of soaking it all up like a sponge. And the fun part about that was that uh, we had a lot of visiting winemakers from all over the country and the world that would pop in when they are in town. So I really got to meet everyone in the wine industry it felt like and I ended up working at that winery for about six years so I wasn't polishing glassware and emptying spit buckets for too long. I eventually became one of their floor sommeliers and I was also leading tours of our tasting room and and the barrel room and helping out with the wine production whenever they would let me in there and managing Fence. I taught my very first wine tasting classes there, which was just opened up a whole new world for me. And that's really where I got my start. And after I left that role, I went on to wine director positions all around New York City and worked in the restaurant industry for a really long time. Obviously with COVID, uh, things have changed a little bit, so big transition into virtual tastings now and doing a lot more writing about wine, teaching virtual classes, and that's been a really fun adventure as well. Definitely not something I set out to do, but I've been loving it.
1: How is that going so far with virtual wine tastings? I mean, it, it seems like a really interesting concept. Are you having people from all over the country do it? Is it, you know, people in the same room? Tell me a little bit about how that's working.
2: Yeah, it's been a huge learning curve, and to be honest with you, it was not something I had as a part of my business plan, but when things started shut down, I had so many private event clients where I had done many in-person tastings Corporate groups, you know, just going to their conference room and doing workshops with their teams uh, that started to ask me if I had capability to do this thing virtually just because their teams were now remote. They were really desperate for a fun activity and just a way to bring everybody together in an organized kind of social setting. I think we've all been on like one too many virtual happy hours. It just descended quickly into chaos with everyone talking at the same time if you don't really have a moderator or a host or an activity. And so I started doing these things virtually and it's been so much fun. I was a little skeptical at first. I didn't know how the format would translate into a virtual or digital experience, but there hasn't been a whole lot lost in the translation. I make sure everyone has the same wines in front of them. And we do a head to toe tasting, starting with like the wine tasting basics, and then we go really in depth into the wines. Everyone gets a chance to ask their questions. And honestly, I found that there are advantages to the digital format that you wouldn't think of. For example, if someone might have been a little bit shy to ask a question in a big live seminar, all of a sudden they can just pop their question privately in the chat box to me and really not have any embarrassment Or, you know, timidity around what they do and don't know about wine, which, as we know, is a whole thing. And so that is definitely an advantage to it. And it's also nice to be able to send everybody the video replay of the Zoom because that way they can continue to practice um, in that guided tasting setting with the sommelier uh, as many times as they want to. So that's also been a really cool advantage, I think, of doing them virtually.
1: Very cool. Yeah, it's funny because wine has this sort of aura around it where I think people are really interested and really want to know more about it. But yeah, you know, at least I will speaking for myself, very timid and, and sort of I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, and, you know, my wife and I have taken wine class 101s and, and just trying to learn a little bit more so that it's not a topic that is totally, totally foreign to me. So um, I'm really excited to have you on today because I think we're going to run the gamut of conversation around you know just basic 101 to to getting into a little bit more about collecting wine and that sort of thing for those who are starting to kind of discover their taste for wine where do you recommend that those people start you know what what's the the ground level for for people just getting into the wine arena
2: yeah so the good news is that it actually doesn't take a lot of knowledge to exponentially elevate your own ability to taste and choose wine. A little information goes such a long way. And that's one thing I find when I teach is that a lot of wine culture, as we know, is kind of about flexing. Like, how much do you know? How much can you show off? Do you know this certain winery right. in Tuscany that you want to tell everyone over dinner? And so, what I try to do is give everyone just like little helpful bites of info that will make them sound like they know what they're doing and give them a lot more confidence. To me, that's the name of the game here. It's getting more confident about wine and really about the kinds of wines that you like. So my first piece of advice would just be to taste as much as you possibly can, which is a very good homework assignment. <laughs> I was going to people... say that sounds like a <laughs> great
1: So yeah, We can finish this podcast now. I'll go. I'll go taste and then we can come back later.
2: Yeah, and just a couple points with that. Uh, the first thing I really try to impress upon people is to not get caught up with point scores or Yelp reviews um, about wines and that kind of thing, like those kinds of apps where like people can rate their favorite wines. Don't be the guy that immediately sits down at the restaurant table, pulls out his smartphone and starts looking up ratings and scores for every (laughs) wine on the list. Don't be that guy, I promise you. Uh, There's such a better way to go about it. But what people don't understand about the score culture is that it's generally highly subjective and it is one person giving a wine a certain rating. It's not a huge committee of wine experts that are all coming together to decide these things. It's just one person. So if you don't have a palette that's similar to theirs, their review is not going to help you. And on top of that, maybe they are tired, or they have a cold, or they just got in a fight with their wife, you know, they're their tasting skills aren't bulletproof perfect either in terms of all of the technical aspects of assessing a wine. So I know it's an easy tool for people to feel like, oh, it has 95 points, it must be good. But I think that there's a reality to the fact that there are wines that are very very well made and very high quality wines that I just don't really personally care for because they don't fit my personal taste preferences. So Mm -hmm. really try to let go of that idea that, oh, if it didn't get a 95 or above, I'm not going to even give it a chance. It's really more about locking in your own personal preferences. And one really good way to do that is just to start – either a wine tasting journal or a spreadsheet. If you're geeky like that, and just start tracking the wines you taste and your thoughts on them, and you're going to start seeing some trends. It might not be what you expect, but I'll give you an example here. Maybe you tried a couple months ago a Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and you really loved it, and you take some notes about what you enjoyed about it. Maybe it was crisp and refreshing. Maybe it was kind of earthy. You know, you have your observations. Asians. And then months later, you try a cru Beaujolais Gamay from the Morgon region of France. And maybe you love that as well. And on the surface, they wouldn't seem to have a lot of similarities. One's from the US, one's from France, one's from a brand new winery, one's from a fifth generation wine farming family. One is Pinot Noir, one is Gamay. But what you realize is, oh, well, they both have bright, tart, crunchy red fruit notes. They're both very elegant. They both have 13% alcohol. Uh, They both have a really long, extended, earthy finish. You're going to start understanding that there are textural and flavor and aroma attributes that really speak to you. They just light you up. They ring your bell. They're pleasurable for you. And being able to kind of taste a lot of wine and see you're going to start seeing a common theme of the types of attributes that you enjoy wine and it might transcend a region and it might transcend a grape variety. So it's important to have a lot of diversity in what you're tasting. I cannot tell you how many people I've met in my career that have said, I only drink Napa Cab, only drink Napa Cabernet. And I always say you're you're missing out on so much. Yes, I love vanilla ice cream, but if I never tried rocky road or strawberry or Butter pecan, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm missing. So, it's nice to to know a wine that you like that you kind of feel is a safe bet. You know, you like Napa Cab from Spring Mountain and you know this, you love this one producer. That's awesome. But if you have the ability to diversify a little bit more, I'm more interested in you finding those flavor profiles that really resonate with you and less trying to really limit yourself to a certain type of grape or a certain type of region. And also on that note, keep an open mind. Sometimes what I also see all the time is that somebody tried one wine one time and it was a really poorly made example of that wine and they decide they hate it and they never want to try it again. And, you know, oftentimes if you try a really quality, well-made example of that same wine, you know that you really love it. So that's another good tip is if you think you don't like a certain type of wine it's okay to wait a while go back revisit it try it again that happens you know we change our tastes change you know no little kid likes brussels sprouts and now they're on like every restaurant menu so you know give it a, give things a chance you know go back and try them again
1: so sarah how would you figure out if it was a well-made wine or if it was a wine that just wasn't for you
2: Yeah, I think a good way to do that is to try at least five different expressions of that wine, maybe from different places in the world or different winemaking styles. A good example of this is Chardonnay. A lot of people have a real aversion to a really heavy, big, oaky, buttery style of Chardonnay from a certain winery they may have tried out of California. But if I pour them a Chablis from Burgundy in France, it's really crisp and fresh, totally different expression regionally and stylistically. They their mind is blown and they love it. Or they love champagne, which is usually primarily made of Chardonnay grapes. So, you know, try at least five different types of the wine, kind of see for you if it really is something about the wine in its core that you just don't like, or whether you just had kind of a bad example or a style that's, Baby, typically well-made, but the style doesn't really resonate with you. Uh, You know, there's important to kind of understand that in wine, there's really two components that you're looking at. The first is what Mother Nature does. So the climate, the soil, even the farming, what happens in the actual vineyard where the grapes are grown, And then the second part of that is what the winemaker does. What happens when the fruit comes into the winery? What kinds of barrels are they using? What kinds of fermentation are they putting the wine through? A a winemaker is a lot like a chef. If you gave 10 chefs the same basket of ingredients, you would come up with 10 different dishes. Same with the winemaker. You gave 10 winemakers a Bushel of grapes from the exact same vineyard plot, you could come out with 10 different wines. So one little fun tip that I recommend is if you try a wine you really love, find out who made it and become a fan of that winemaker. Just like you could be a fan of a chef in every dish they make, no matter what restaurant they created it for, it just somehow... Is delicious to you because you share, you love their style. With winemakers, a lot of them you'll find when you do a little digging that they make mostly wine for this one winery, but they also consult for like 10 other wineries. And so they have their hands on that. And then they mentored this guy and that guy. So those guys have a similar style. You can even follow them on social media and see what they're drinking. That's a really great way to kind of expand and find wines stylistically that you might really love. I like the idea of winemakers having super fans just like celebrity chefs do.
1: For sure. So getting to that point, right? There, there are you know so many different palettes out there you know, and knock on wood, hopefully we'll get to a point soon where we can have dinner parties again and people can come over to the house um, and, and enjoy some food and some wine together. When you're, when you're having dinner with a large group, you know, how do you select wines at home for different palates? I mean, do you just give, you know, two different, you know, reds and two different whites and just hope that somebody finds an option that they like? Or tell me, you know, how, how, how would you determine that?
2: I tend to go very conservative, to be honest, when I'm hosting a larger group, especially if I don't know everyone personally and the types of wines they enjoy. So I tend to not do anything too funky, too out there, too unconventional, too adventurous. That's fun for me when I'm like hanging out with my wine geek friends and they (laughs) want me to introduce them to things like that. But I always say, you know, if you're going to like a family dinner party and Aunt Edna loves her Chardonnay. Like, I'll find an expression of Chardonnay that I enjoy that she would probably also like. When you're hosting, it's so much about making everyone comfortable. And the last thing I ever want to do is throw out a bunch of super geeky wine to a crowd that has no experience with those and have them feel like completely in over their head. But I do think it's also nice to have, you know, a couple different reds and a couple different whites. One really great practice with this, and actually it's one of the main exercises I recommend to people when they're first getting into wine, is understanding the style differences between the two categories of wine that are mainly what we're going to be looking at, which is old world wines versus new world wines. So old world wines would be France, Italy, Spain, Austria, Germany, all of those old school European countries that have been making wine for centuries. New world is everybody else. So that could be California, uh, Oregon, South America, like Argentina and Chile, uh, Australia, New Zealand, those are all new world wine regions. And for the most part, old world style is lower in alcohol and it's more structured, so you get more tannin, usually more acidity, um, sometimes more of a subtle or elegant kind of expression and new world style tends to be higher in alcohol, more powerful, richer, a lot of times fruitier. So one thing that's really fun to do on your own is to do what we call a comparative tasting where you open two bottles at the same time and you pour them in two glasses and you have them both in front of you and you sit back and forth. So for example, you could try a left bank Bordeaux, which is based on the Cabernet Sauvignon grape and you could try a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon next to each other kind of go back and forth and really make notes of which one you prefer, and that will be really helpful when you're looking at a wine list or even when you have a dinner party. I will make sure I have a couple old world wines on the table and a couple new world wines because people usually really do fall into one of the two camps. And I like to make sure there's something for everybody. That's so easy to do, to have a French Sauvignon Blanc and a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand both on the table. You're going to make everybody happy.
1: Well, that's great advice. I mean, you brought up the the dinner menu – choices and i have been guilty of this you know taking clients out to dinner sat down looked at the wine menu didn't see anything familiar and just <laughs> handed it over and basically said hey just just pick what you'd like but i i think it would be great for you know the audience and myself to get some some ideas and tips on how do you take command of the the wine menu so that you know you know what you're doing and you know, you can feel like you have a little bit of control of the situation. So can can you give us a, a few pointers on that?
2: Yes. As someone that has worked in New York City restaurants for almost a decade of my life, I have so many good tips for you. And I can tell you what not to do because I have seen it all. But absolutely, I relate to this so much. It's my biggest pet peeve when you sit down, you open the menu, and it looks like they just try to find as many obscure wines that no one's ever heard of. And that's like a medal of <laughs> honor in some, way. you're like, what's, mavrud from bulgaria like slovenian why like where am yeah. i so that does happen a lot especially in cities like new york san francisco you know they're really trendy like cutting-edge culinary cities who definitely get a lot of sommeliers that pride themselves on being super adventurous and that can be really really tough i would say the first thing to do well, first of all, if it's really high stakes, like if you're trying to close a deal, <laughs> if you're trying to entertain high profile clients, or even if you're like proposing or it's like you're meeting your future in-laws for the first time, it's the last thing you want to be is nervous and stressed about the wine selection. You have like another enough stressful things in that scenario without worrying about the wine. And so one thing you can always do is just call ahead, talk to the manager or the wine director, or the sommelier, and actually pre-arrange the wine. That is so easy because you can make these decisions without all eyes on you. You can speak openly about your budget. And it's a baller move to like already have the champagne popped waiting on the table when you arrive. Or Uh, already have have the wine that's been decanting for three hours before you even get to the restaurant. And wine teams are so – we love to do this stuff. It's There's no extra service charge for that kind of service. Like any good restaurant can completely accommodate that kind of request. So I love to recommend that just to take the pressure off you in the moment. But that being said, if you haven't really gone that far in advance in your planning, just the three things I think you should think about before you sit down and just knowing those three things are going to make the transaction pretty seamless and pretty quick. The last thing you want is to spend like half of your dinner chatting with the sommelier and not with your guests. <laughs> so right. we try to make this transition transaction quick and painless. But I would say know whether you're looking at going by the bottle or by the glass, that's a big easy decision to make and I have thoughts on that which I'll share in a second. Uh, Know whether you're going to go with red versus white or any style preferences that you might have in there and then also knowing your budget and this is such an easy thing that so few dining guests will do but just being able to state what you want to spend on wine either out loud or you can just point to something on the menu that's in your price range and just say, hey, we're looking at something in this price range. It's kind of all you have to do, like done and done. Uh, But that is going to just narrow your options. And I think a lot of people are afraid to stay a budget because they don't want the staff to maybe look down on them or judge their budget. But as a sommelier that's like had to sweat at the table for like 10 minutes, like trying to pull out of someone what their optimal price range is, I am so grateful when someone lets me know, okay, I'm looking for an old world, full-bodied red wine that's around $80. I'm like, hallelujah, you just took me from 500 (laughs) options to like five. And it's so much easier to help you narrow it down from there. So price is a huge thing that it's just really helpful to the staff, helps narrow down your options and you find the best bottle for you. So don't be afraid to say that. In fact, you're doing the staff a big favor if you just let them know exactly where you stand with all of that I would say with the bottle versus the glass, I'm going to give you a little insider wine industry secret here. I don't know if it's exactly a secret, but I feel like it's a little known piece of information is that bottles of wine are generally marked up two to three times the wholesale price on a restaurant list. Wines by the glass are marked up four and a half to five times wholesale. Wow. Okay. (laughs) it's huge difference. So bottles are such a better value. If you're thinking about wine, I would say you're going to have more selection and more options from the bottle list. And you're going to get such a better wine for your money if you're looking at bottles. Also, you're going to get better service. If you order a bottle of wine, you have a manager or a wine knowledgeable waiter or a sommelier or an assistant somm that's going to bring you the wine that's going to check it for you to make sure there's no issues with it. They're going to properly decant it. They're going to make sure your glass is always full. It's just really nice service versus if you order a glass of wine, potentially you have a busy slammed bar back just like glugging Pinot Noir into a glass from a bottle that maybe has been open a few days behind the bar. No one really checked it to make sure if it was still good or if it was starting to taste a little stale. And it's a little bit riskier sometimes ordering wine by the glass Whereas with the bottles, you have more assurance of the quality and the service. And I think it also sends a nice little message to the staff as well that you're a seasoned diner and you know to order a bottle and they'll usually take really nice care of you. So that's like a a fringe benefit, I think, of going by the bottle. Most states will allow you to take your leftover wine home with you. So if you feel like, ah oh, we don't know if we want a whole bottle, we maybe we'll just get a glass, you're probably going to end up getting a second glass anyway, could have gotten a bottle and you can always take the leftover home with you. So that would be a piece of advice for me on kind of that direction to go.
1: I love it. You know, you had, you had mentioned sort of the, the presentation of the wine when you buy the bottle and you know, many times they'll present the cork to you and you and I have talked about this before, you know, yeah. I've seen people smell it, you know, can, can you give the audience, what are you supposed to do with the cork? You know, are you supposed to taste the wine when they give it to, you know, get, just walk me through that whole, you know, sort of ordeal that, that gets presented.
2: Yeah, it's a whole crazy ceremonial ritual for a lot of people, and it makes them so nervous, and I just love to break this down because it's actually way simpler than most diners understand, and it's very practical, all the different steps. So I'll just take you through it really quick. So when you order your bottle, the first thing they're going to do is go fetch it from the cellar, and they're going to bring it to the table, and they're just going to show you, they're going to present it to you and show it to you. I highly recommend don't just glance over and nod. Really take the time to read the label because it's, it does happen that it's busy and we grab the wrong bottle. Or you pointed at a wine on the menu and we actually thought you were pointing at the one above it. Or you wanted the 2015 and we brought you the 2010. I mean, this happens. It's just, a fact of restaurant life. And the last thing you want to do is not notice that and then be in total sticker shock when the bill arrives. And it's like not what you thought you were ordering. So right. the presentation is just for you to get that opportunity to confirm this is the actual wine I ordered. And I wouldn't rush that process. Really make sure it's the right wine. And then the next thing that will happen is that they'll open the bottle and they will present the cork. And this is where people get really tripped up because they're waving the cork around and they're sniffing it and they're feeling it all and squeezing it and licking it. And I don't know what else they're doing with it. But really, that is, <laughs> it's so unnecessary. Really, all you have to do is look at it. And this is why it's actually pretty cool. Back in the day... A lot of shady restaurants would be refilling bottles of fine wine with swill wine back in the kitchen and recorking it and keep reselling it and so what we do now is because the cork usually has the name of the winery or the producer printed on it we're presenting the cork just so you can authenticate the wine just so you know it's actually legit It actually came to you from that actual winery. And that's the true only purpose of presenting the cork. So you don't need to smell it. You don't really need to do anything with it. Just take a look at it, you know, and nod. They'll usually remove it from the table. If you're one of those people that keeps corks as a souvenir, you can definitely say that and just ask them if you can keep it, never a problem. And then finally, they're gonna pour you a taste of the wine. And again, this step is usually a little misunderstood because the purpose of the taste is not for you to say whether you like it or not. The purpose of the taste is so you have the opportunity, if there's something wrong with the wine, there's actually a problem with it. Maybe it's spoiled, maybe it's oxidized, maybe it's infected with this bacteria called TCA that makes it taste kind of musty or moldy. Any of those things, if there are issues... You want to catch it before they pour the wine into your guest glasses, so that is what the taste is for. You're gonna look for: does it taste like a musty, moldy basement? <laughs> does it taste <laughs> like vinegar? Is it kind of heat damage? There's a lot of red wines that get almost like a soy sauce kind of taste when they've like been on the back of a truck that was too hot. Uh, that happens, um, and there are flaws in wine that actually can be corrected. So sometimes a wine will smell like sulfur and that's actually just because the wine didn't get enough oxygen in the bottle. Decanting it quickly usually gets those fumes to blow off. So sometimes your server or your sommelier actually will be able to correct whatever the issue was. And sometimes it's just a faulted wine. And so If you think it could be like a little bit off, especially if you've tried the wine before, I would definitely say something. I've experienced this where you know, my tables will accept the wine and sort of half drink it all night. And then they'll leave half the bottle and they'll tell me that I should enjoy it after my shift. And then I go to taste it. And I realized they were drinking spoiled wine like the whole dinner and they were too shy to say something. So even if you think you're not 100% sure you think it might be a little off, I would uh, make that known. And if you just don't like it, Technically, it's not the restaurant's job to refund you if it's a perfectly sound wine. However, most great restaurants will not make you drink a wine that you're not enjoying. And we'll find a way. I would maybe be able to sell that bottle by the glass to some regulars at the bar. I mean, I would find a way to make my margin back on the bottle rather than make the guests drink something they really didn't like. So if it's just not your taste... Say so. That can be awkward if you have a long conversation with a sommelier and they recommend something for you and then you go rogue and order something different and don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's an awkward conversation to have to admit that. But again, most high quality, like well regarded restaurants, they really want you to be happy. They want you to come back. They're not going to make you suffer through a bottle that you don't like. But it is kind of important to note the purpose of that taste is really not about whether you like it or not. It's just supposed to confirm the wine is sound and then it's not flawed or faulty.
1: Gotcha. So just shifting gears a little bit, you know, I'm curious to find out, you know, I've I've started – Pseudo collecting wine, and and I don't necessarily know if I'm any good at it. I think I keep drinking <laughs> my collection better than I, I keep stocking it up, especially during during COVID. So especially um, now, yeah it's been, it's been an interesting couple of months. Um, you know, drinking wine that that I really had no intention of of drinking and, and holding on to. But for, in that in that respect, how do you decide what wines you would keep versus you know versus drink and enjoy with friends and family. You know, how do you make that decision? Or if you were starting a wine collection today, where would you start? You know, can can you fill us in on that?
2: Absolutely. I have to say that, Wine auctions are really, really fun. Everyone should go to at least one in their life because it's just a whole scene. And so if you have the opportunity to go to one, they can be a really great place to find some really cool and rare wines that might be fun to add to your collection. And they're always free. But oftentimes, they'll have a tasting a couple days before where they'll open up some really cool stuff from the lot. And you can buy a ticket for those, usually $50 to $75. And you can go in and actually taste some really cool, rare, old wines. And that's really an awesome experience to have. So I highly recommend that. And in terms of purchasing wine that way, I think it's important to note, uh, if you're looking at buying wine at auction make that decision before you go of whether you're just buying these wines as an investment and you're never going to plan on drinking them, but you know that they're going to appreciate a lot in value versus if you're actually buying it to be able to drink it. And if you're buying these wines as an investment, it's crucial that you have optimal storage conditions for the wine because that's really going to determine the price you're going to be able to resell at. If the wine has just been sitting in a closet or a basement for 10 to 15 years, you're going to lose some money. But if it's delivered to you and it's properly cellared, if you don't have a wine cellar at home, there's wine warehousing services that will do it for you. And ideally what you want is the wines to be delivered properly cellared and then just not even moved until you're ready to resell. So if you don't have those storage capabilities, I wouldn't waste your time buying buying wine only as an investment. Uh, one cool thing about buying wine just to drink it is that you can get an amazing deal if the label is damaged. And this is because wine brokers, if the label is torn or stained or you know, ra- unraveling a little bit, they won't be able to resell that bottle so they're not interested. <laughs> so you can get an incredible deal. The wine inside the bottle is, is perfect. It just might be like a little tear in the label. So that's something that you can look out for. Uh, some bottles that I think it's a great idea to buy if you're planning to drink are special milestone bottles that have some personal meaning to you that you might find a big score on. An uh, example of this would be uh, you find a birth year wine for your 10-year-old that you want to sell her and give it to them as a 21st birthday present, or you find a rare wine that you enjoyed on your honeymoon at a certain winery in Italy, and you then have the opportunity to give it as an anniversary gift. Those are really important things I think that would and, you know, incentivize me to go ahead and make that auction purchase. But just go in knowing your budget. It's easy to get caught up in the fever of the heat of the moment of the bidding wars and end up overspending. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that there are going to be fees on top of the asking price for the bottle. So you'll be paying for tax, shipping, insurance, and usually up to 20 percent to the auction house. It's like the buyer's premium is what they call okay. it. So the the ticket price is going to be one thing and then what you actually end up paying is going to be quite a bit higher. So just to know that, keep that in mind and uh, don't be too shocked if your five hundred dollar bottle ends up being like six hundred and fifty at the end of the day.
1: Got it. So so no going in, you know, if you're going to make the investment like any other investment, make sure you do your research before you just go in there you know, trying Absolutely. to, trying to uh, put that money down.
2: Yeah, and you can study the catalog in advance and do a little research, you know, have your eye on a couple of things. And then I think the last piece of advice I would give for this is that if you are able to start your own little wine collection, I would have it evaluated by a professional appraiser like every three to five years. One thing that happens all the time is that people sit on their wines too long and they lose their value. Not all wine is meant to be aged for a long time. And I see this happen a lot, for example, if, for example, the collector passes away and their kids are responsible for liquidating the collection and no one's appraised it for like 20 years, <laughs> there's usually <laughs> a lot of disappointment because usually it's lost a lot of value. So Got it's it. always it's not a bad idea, like again, every three to five years to have an appraiser come in and just tell you what you're looking at.
1: Okay. So you know, again, I appreciate the time today. Um, Can you just tell the audience where they can find you find out more information? I mean, this has been super valuable for me. I learned a lot. So I appreciate you spending the time. Um, Tell us where they where they can find you and, and what kind of services you offer.
2: Of course. So right now I'm offering tons of virtual wine tastings, which are so fun. So that can just be a date night in on a wine Wednesday. It can be your anniversary. It can be a whole fun thing for your corporate team. I love to do them. You can find out more information on my website, which is thelushlife.xyz. And then I'm always posting just fun wine tips and videos, and if any of the little secrets and and tips and tricks I gave you today were helpful, I have a lot more of those on my Instagram. So I'm on Instagram at thelushlife.xyz as well.
1: Awesome. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for spending the time, Uh, and thank you to the listening audience. This is another episode of Opus Private Client Wealth Style Podcast. Thanks for listening. I click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Talk to you guys soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.
3: Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Yvonne Watanabe is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities LLC (PAS). Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS member FINRA SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client, LLC, is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. California Insurance License Number 0H44206, 2020-108191, expiry 09 of 22.